Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. For more great interviews and resources on the craft and business of writing, be sure to check out our companion website, scriptsandscribes.com. But first, we welcome to the show a manager and producer who relocated to the U.S. from Canada in 2004 and got a start at the William Morris Mailroom and worked at UTA before joining the Hollywood gang at Warner's as a development exec prior to launching his own management company, creating Management SGC. Welcome, Mr. Scott Carr. How are you today, Scott? I'm great. Thank you, Kevin, for inviting me onto the show. Glad to have you. I've heard a lot of great things about you. We have, we have never met, but I've heard a lot of great things about you. Um, so I appreciate my money is My money is well spent around town. Absolutely. You're, uh-huh. you're a smart spender. And I guess we always tend to start these things with uh, your background, how you got started in the industry. I know you studied film, and, and you're a huge film buff, um, and you even shot your own movie in high school. Uh, so how did you get your start in the industry and sort of what made you move into representation? Yeah. So I, I had, uh, I grew up loving and watching movies and collecting movies to the point in which I would like to try to memorize them on an encyclopedic level, which was just a fun little thing for me to do, but ended up being an invaluable, um, skill set when you come to town, I have to memorize all of these people's names and companies and credits and everything. Um, so that, that made me feel instinctually when I got here that I was preparing myself on, on, on the right level for that. But after going to film school and, and coming to Los Angeles about a year after from Canada, I had actually written a screenplay because I figured if I was going to come from, uh, from a foreign country without work documentation to, to work legally in a country, I'd need a piece of leverage. And I thought I would just sell a script in a few weeks and be hired to direct it. And they'd give me all the paperwork I needed and I would be fine. <laughs> of course, when I got here and I did not know anyone, um, I did not have a place to say or any of that. I realized it's kind of the the big, bad city of Los Angeles growing up on a farm in Canada. So I was extremely um, daunted by how challenging it was to to get people to read my material. I did what a lot of young writers, I think, do, which was buying the books on how to sell your script in Hollywood and writing query letters to all the agencies and management companies. And they were all rejected or unreturned. Um, and as a result, um, I was running low on money and I did not know how I was going to stay in the country because I could not work. So what I ultimately ended up doing after consulting with an immigration attorney was I was able to find and befriend uh, an American who had an interest in the film industry and um, convinced him to start a production company, which I helped him um, pay for. And then I was sponsored to work at that company because I have a bachelor's degree in film, which qualified me as an expert in the industry, made me um, viable for an H-1B visa. And, um, And then after I was able to accomplish that, then I then had the legal documentation to stay and work in the country and make money. But of course, this company was just getting started and had no resources or infrastructure, which is a couple of people with an aspirations who one day make movies. Mm-hmm. So I had to pay the bills. So I, um, so what I did is I actually got certified as a personal trainer in LA. And then I was able to find work at a local gym. And then they paid me through this loan out company. So I could always make sure I was paying my taxes and everything was above board with my visa. And that's how I made ends meet for about 18 months. And um, that whole time I was just networking and trying to figure out how to be either a writer or a writer producer in Hollywood because I grew up in Canada and my education was very comprehensive in the sense of film history, film theory, some filmmaking, but certainly by no stretch of the imagination was the film business. I didn't even know that representatives existed where I grew up and studied film 
I did not realize that there were people that made these movies beyond the people that were on the posters to the movies. Um, So in the first 18 months, I started to realize there's this whole underbelly of Hollywood that I did not know existed, and I had to meet these people. Um, And as I'm sure a lot of people can appreciate when you don't really have any relationships, I could not seem to get past the periphery. I did not have anything that was of value. I did not have a brand, and I did not have content. I was just someone I thought was very personable and could impress people with a conversation, and um, that didn't get me too far. So I started optioning material and meeting writers and trying to find ways to kind of get inside the walls. And then after doing that for about a, another year, I started to realize that this process is somewhat futile if I do not find a way to get inside the walls and, and get trusted and, and with um, responsibility and access to information and scripts and players and all of that. So I eventually, after consulting with a few friends of mine who knew the industry really well, they suggested they go and work at a talent agency, something which I could never do underneath my work status at that point. But I, but I was engaged to get married to my girlfriend of a few years at that stage. And when I got married, I was able to upgrade my work status to a green card. And then I could go work anywhere because I became an American resident. And I applied to William Morris and, and UTA and CAA and with virtually no resume because I was allegedly an assistant at this company, which I technically was running with my friend, but I could not put that on a resume and then try to go off and be a mailroom trainee. So with Leslie Tomar's help, we kind of created a resume that made a lot more sense for the perception of what I was going after. I had a lot of volunteer work from a leadership program I participated in. I started an entrepreneur's council in the Central City Chamber of Commerce. So I had some things that looked good in the resume. And that got me in the door with the recruiter. And I was just able to kind of like win the, win the job. And he hired me in the room and then put me in the put me in the, rail, the mail room the next week. And I hadn't worked a day in my life in the industry officially, nor had I ever worked in a desk. Right. Um, so I had to kind of pretend that I knew what I was doing as an assistant while learning very quickly by watching others and kind of just walking the walk and faking it till I make it type thing. While I was already like 26 years old at the point I went to work at William Morris. So I felt I was a little bit more mature and thick skinned and I could kind of, you know, stand out as a result. And uh, then I spent a year with the William Morris agency prior to the merger with Endeavor when it was mm-hmm. still the official William Morris agency. I was part of that last class before, um, before the merger. And um, I eventually started working with an agent um, as his assistant, Ramses Azoff and Michael Shoresky in the multi-virtualist department there. And in spending a year around agents and representatives in general, I really started to learn and appreciate and eventually really love that side of the business because it was communication-based, it was, it was information-based, it enabled me to, to have leverage by controlling content and working with clients and it was really an exciting side of the business that I had no exposure to at all and frankly no interest in until I started to do it for a year. Right. And then when the merger happened, I had left the agency with Ramses and went to UTA and that was great. So now I had an exposure within another massive agency with a different corporate culture and different agents and, and it just kind of doubled my Rolodex instantaneously. Mm-hmm. And I worked there with them for another eight months. And I was still very much loving what the role of a representative was. But at the same time, I also felt like I came to Hollywood with far more of a creative aspiration and to be involved in that side of the business. So 
I wanted to build my relationships and experience more on that side. So off of Ramsey's desk, I got a job working as a, as an executive at a production company, like you said, Hollywood Gang over at Warner Brothers. And I did that for a year. And for me, that job was basically working 12 hours a day, six days a week in an office with no window, <laughs> reading scripts, doing notes, uh, doing lists, tracking filmmakers. And I-, I loved that part of the job as well, but not in that volume of, uh, of time and with such a degree of anti-socialism in that regard. Because I, I became somewhat of a social butterfly from just the nature of the job of working in an agency. Mm-hmm. I was very comfortable in that space. And this was the opposite of that. So for me, it's like, what is the merger of both of these two jobs? What enables me to service clients, be a coach, a representative um, in that respect, and be the man behind the curtain while also exercising my creative inclinations and desires and being more hands-on with material and seeking out material and giving me the opportunity to produce at one point. And of course, the answer is management, but I had no experience at all in management at the time. Um, and when I left Hollywood Gang um, to kind of like get a better footing on what I actually wanted to do for a career, I was about two and a half years into my tenure in L.A. And I felt inside the walls of Hollywood, so to speak. And I felt it was it'd be better for me to get a little bit more experience building relationships, gathering your resources, building a client base if possible. And how do I do that? And uh, I had such a great rapport and relationships with um, with the people at UTA. And I was welcomed back into that environment to work um, this time with another agent, Andrew Kanata, who had um, had a very senior business. He was a partner at the agency. It gave me access to, you know, a whole other level of politics was fascinating to explore. And while working there, I was just able to continue to track filmmakers and writers. And eventually just started to introduce people to the agents there that were interested in being tipped to writers and directors. And over a couple of years, um, I was actually able to start to develop these professional relationships with a number of clients, people which I think, you know, for that time started to be, I started to be regarded as a member of their team and so in, in the representation team in some regards. And eventually when I got to that point where I'm like, okay, I've now kind of developed the business that I think is going to give me the traction and momentum I need to actually start a business. Mm-hmm. That's when I just started to put the wheels in motion to create my own independent management company with the support of the agency and with the support of a number of people, just in terms of getting advice from managers on how they all started and starting a company. And once I felt I had all of that accrued and ready to go, then I just went off and started my business with, you know, nine, nine of my clients in tow and, uh, and then continued to, to build it since while still always focusing on my on my core business at mm-hmm. the same time, so it was it was it was by no stretch um, my desire when I came to LA to get into representation. It was just a natural progression of the environment in which I worked in, and then um, the people that I worked with that empowered me and inspired me, and and the nature of the work started to really excite me, um, even more so than sitting in a computer and writing, going out on a set and being a filmmaker. I think the producerial aspects are very exciting to me, which I'll have an opportunity to do now working in management, not so much this moment because I'm still very much management centric, building a business and focusing on my clients. But I do, I will be afforded those opportunities if I generate them um, in the future, which is also very exciting to me. Right. No, absolutely. 
having worked at uh, William Morris and UTA, uh, this is sort of a side question that just kind of came to my head. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that is a good day job for aspiring screenwriters at all? I'd say yes and no. And the reason I kind of waffle on that is yes, in the sense that it's going to give them access to the people that are going to be invaluable to their careers, mm-hmm. namely representatives, and they're going to interface with executives and their offices and studios. And these are all the people that they're going to want to expose their material to. And also they're going to learn the business side of screenwriting because it's only half writing. The other half is 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 navigating the system somewhat as a diplomat, as a politician, just knowing how to interface with people and knowing what the nature of their job is so that you kind of know how to speak to their listening and all of that. Like an agency is excellent at having someone learning that side of the business. The downside is that if you work at an agency, you're going to be working 80 hours a week. You're going mm-hmm. to get there at 7.30 in the morning and you're going to work until 10 at night. And if you have drinks and you get a network and lunches and I find sometimes people don't have time to write, unfortunately, because they're on the weekend, they have to read scripts for their boss. And before you know it, you become a glorified assistant at an agency you're in for, for the majority of your week. So if that, I would encourage um, aspiring writers to go work at an agency if they can also manage their time such that they get up early in the morning or they carve out time at lunch or they only have a one or two nights a week where they actually network, then they, they carve out time to write. The weekend to get a balanced reading with writing, it is going to be, it's going to be all consuming between those two jobs because breaking the industry as a writer means you have to be writing all the time and constantly generating material and improving your craft and finding your voice. And on top of that, you're going to be working for an agent, which represents 60 to 70 clients, which means that you're assisting 61 to 71 people, including the agent. Right. So, you know, that becomes your life. And you have to, when you go into the agency system, usually you have to put in a good year or two Mm -hmm. just to get out what you put in. And um, that's usually the commitment that the agency or an agent asks of you. So, you know, you're... Of course, if you had to leave because you had an opportunity, then they would understand. But I would think that a good face, you would want to at least be there, committed to them for that amount of time, and then leave once you've fulfilled that obligation, just if anything, because it's, you know, for the politics and the right thing to do. So that's also an element. It's not like a waiter job where you take the job and then you leave the job whenever you want. You kind of, you really do have to put in your time, in my experience of it, to get the most out of it. And to be most respectful of the opportunity that it's affording you. Right, right. Now, so it's a half-baked answer, but I guess <laughs> the ultimate answer would be, I would say yes, would be, I would incline people to do it because I did it and found it to be an invaluable education. It's almost like getting paid to go to grad school. Right. Um, because the business of Hollywood is just as important to learn as the craft of writing. Sure. If you want to succeed as a screenwriter, in Hollywood, especially within the studio system. Right. Absolutely. Being a huge film buff and, you know, having shot your own film and do you think that that makes, that bleeds into your uh, skills and representation? Do you think that makes you a better rep? Again, having this breadth of film knowledge. I I very much do. Um, it, It comes in handy every day. I'd say the information from like, growing up 10, 15, 20 years ago isn't tremendously relevant. So it doesn't really matter if I know a lot about movies made in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, other than just 
you know, being a passionate about what I do and mm-hmm. that passion can be infectious, but it also made, it's a skill and a passion that I haven't lost. So I still watch as much as I can, read as much as I can, study as much as I can. And in this industry, because there's such a, com- such competition and a tremendous amount of development happening around town and movies that have come out, when I work with writers and filmmakers, they might not always be as aware of what's happening creatively. And if they come up with ideas or they're working on things, it allows me just to guide them a little bit more into the space of being fresh and original. Mm-hmm. Because they, not, they might not realize that something like that has already been done or being done. Right. And it will, it'll, it'll prevent them from wasting time um, because just because they, they, they were unaware. Like, I, I, I want to prevent them from ever feeling like, you know, what they're working on might not be relevant or original by just pretty much having a good finger on the pulse um, and then just making a film and writing in the past and really kind of studying and working at the craft, I think does make me more advantageous for them in a development situation because I can give, you know, I can speak their language. I can give, you know, very comprehensive notes and, um, and guide the process, you know, from that, from an objective point of view of looking at the whole big picture and how it's all coming together while also kind of slowing down inside the process with them and really getting to the minutia, which is important because, you know, in the spec market these days, especially it often flies and dies in the details mm-hmm. and everything has to be extremely polished and well-developed to, to get the traction you need to, to have people take notice and to sell and to attract elements and to get made a lot of the work has to be done before it even sees the market, more so than ever. So I consider myself to be like a hands-on, producerial manager in that respect. If the client values that, sometimes the client wants to be more autonomous and they want to work more independently on a draft. And really, I don't want to be obtrusive to the process. So mm-hmm. I enable them to flow with their process and then I will fit into it based on their needs, um, assuming that it ends up working out for them in that respect. Um, but preferably, you know, which I've done several times is, you know, if a client has an idea for a script, then we, we build it from scratch together. They do the writing, of course, but it's, it's very much a process where when it's all done, you know, we, we feel like we, we, that we were very much responsible for creating, creating it together. And that's the added value that I want to bring for them. Right. How many scripts do you read in an average week, and how many of those are uh, spec submissions as opposed to you know your own client's work and, and that sort of thing? Mm, it certainly varies depending on what what week. Like I'm a very I'm very client centric, so mm-hmm. like I focus like ninety percent of my time on my existing business. Mm-hmm. So I really read material that's relevant to my client's business, be it like directors reading directing material for them or reading material I think might be competing with a client's scripts or just material I feel is good to be aware of so that I can inform clients about what they should be reading in terms mm-hmm. of material that's, that's, that's doing well or people are liking so they've got their finger on the pulse and for focusing as a filter in that regard. Um, in terms of like spec submissions and queries and stuff like that, yeah. um, I, 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 I receive quite a few. Like I, I, I get, you know, set, Many, many, many a day, and um, I, 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 I try to read, you know, as many as I can during the work week. If I can't, then it becomes a heavy weekend for me. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I try to get back to people within two to four weeks if I can. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I can't always commit to that, but that's kind of the goal, depending on how busy I am with my clients. Um, and of course, you know, reading spec scripts versus reading a, an assignment for a director, I have to read that entire script and have an opinion for a query, you know, or a spec script that I'm just reading for other purposes. I can, you know, I can read a fairly nominal amount of it and get a sense of whether or not this is going to be of interest. Right. Um, so I can burn through quite a few in that regard. I can go through, you know, eight to 10 scripts in three hours at, if that's the case, right, um, right. or if they don't exactly move the needle for me in the first 10 to 15 pages. If they do, if a script grabs me, then that's an hour and a half of my life. Mm-hmm. I read very thoroughly and I try to picture the story in my head. So if I'm reading them in that regard, very thoroughly, I may read, um, you know, five, five, five or eight a week, just because that's very time. Right? That's, that's almost 20 hours right there. Right. Absolutely. Um, on top of just my work week. So, it varies. I think um, I read a lot more when I was at an agency just because there's so much content going across my desk that mm-hmm. that was just excruciating in terms of time consuming um, reading. Um, now, fortunately, I have a much more specified business where I'm focused on very specific people and their needs. Mm-hmm. So I can filter and tailor what I need to read based on my business. Right. Now, what do I don't you have like- to read every script that comes across the tracking board anymore. <laughs> Yeah. Um, now, what do you like to see in query letters or query emails? Uh, what, other than a great logline, obviously, and what types of things make you hit the delete key? I like it if, like, I like brevity. Like, I think, you know, that they respect the fact that most people are very busy and, and focus on other things. Like, they don't want to put in, like, a full-blown synopsis mm-hmm. of it. Or not attaching the script is a problem for me. I think when they attach the script, it's presumptuous that I've accepted it. And right. I would rather they request it, I accept it, and I then email them back. So that's something that's kind of a no-no for me. I like if they have some voice in their query, like something that's maybe indicative of their of their of their style of writing. So it doesn't feel like it's just kind of like a generic, you know, will you please consider my script? Here's a lot of line. Thank you for your consideration. I think like writers should write in their voice at all times. Mm-hmm. So I like it if they if they have the they just have the natural voice to always write that way. Um, again, in somewhat of a, a laconic fashion. And uh, I, uh, and then in queries to me, like I, because as a manager, I don't, I'm not, my, my first conversation isn't always sales. It's uh, develop, it's development. Like, is this a writer or a voice I can develop? Not necessarily, is this a script I can sell tomorrow? Mm-hmm. Or is this a script that I can develop to sell? I, I accept a large volume of the queries that I get if they kind of fall into that category I just outlined because you never know like even if they're writing a genre that don't necessarily think is saleable or a piece of material think is saleable if they've got a strong writing style and they, they, they seem to have the, the craft down and the originality down then that might engage me in a conversation about what else they want to be writing or what else are they writing and their aspirations and I, 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 started, I signed a number of clients up, people that I did not even do anything with the script that I signed them off of. And I give them reasons for why I don't think it's worth developing, um, which usually they understand and, and agree with. And then we just roll our sleeves up and try to do something else together. Right. Um, and that's going for me going a lot on faith because I don't know if they can execute that draft. But that's also part of my business model is like, 
I, I, I don't run a business where I'm going to go out and try to sign like the top tier writers and directors across town. It's just, it's just not of interest to me or where I'm at in my career. I look for people that have got talent and I will start with them in their infancy, so to speak, and we'll build them up into something great, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Now, should writers follow up on submissions once sent? And if so, what should the time frame be? I, I think they absolutely should. I appreciate that because I often have an inbox. Like my inbox, my filing system, my inbox is only to-dos. Mm-hmm. And the things that I, have to, that I don't get to as quickly as I sometimes would like are queries. So my inbox is almost entirely just submissions of scripts that I need to read. And that can get kind of long. So if I, if I get a, a follow-up email in a very respectful way with maybe just a little bit of voice in it still, then I, I will probably then kick that up to the top of the pile. So hmm. I just know this person did their due diligence. And sometimes if, my, if I accept some queries that I'm a little bit on the fence about anyway, just because of the log line or because of the way it was the query is framed, but I still accepted it. Something that I might even do in that case is I won't even read it unless the writer follows up with me. Gotcha. If they're following up with me, that tells me they're serious. Mm-hmm. Like being serious about your career means you have to be diligent and persistent. And just knowing that they're doing that indicates to me that they have that skill set. They understand that element, which makes me say, okay, okay, great. It's not like a test or a manipulation. I think it's just something I've noticed I sometimes do. So I encourage people to follow up. I'd say um, after like two weeks is a good time frame, like two weekends mm-hmm. is a good time frame to follow up. And, uh, and then if I, and I always reply, if I, if, I, if they follow up and I haven't read them, I'll get back to them very quickly and apologize and tell them I'll get to it. And then again, I might not still get to it the next day or anything. And if, if they follow up a third time and I haven't read it, that's totally fine. But for me, that's probably the limit. If right. someone has gone to the fourth time, chances are that it just got, I just got disinterested, which again is partially my fault, but it is what it is. Sure. Um, but also I think a writer has to know how to read the signs because they're going to have to read everything in their career in terms of reading a room or reading a person or reading a conversation. So, you know, a fourth time is getting a little bit much. And that also probably tells me that this person has gotten no interest with the scripts because mm-hmm. I assure you I'm not the only person they sent it to. Right. If they're still following up with me on the fourth time, they probably are not getting anything with this script. It's probably not that good. Right. And that's right. obviously kind of a myopic way to look at it, but that's just, you know, a filtering system, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I usually assume. Um, and I, I usually don't even have to open those scripts up at that point. Um, so it's this kind of way I'd manage my time. Right. Gotcha. Now, contests, like being a finalist on a contest, whether it's the nickel or something other contest um, or script hosting and rating services, the posting and rating services like the blacklist or tech scout, um, not the actual mm-hmm. blacklist, but you know, the, the uh, posting yeah, service. The website, yeah. Right. How much do those mean to you? If you see them in queries, I mean, how much do they help you sell a client? How much do they help me? What? I'm sorry. How much do they, how much do they mean to you? If you see them in a query and how much would they help you sell them as a client, if at all? Well, this can help me. I, I would never go out with a client's material and say that this got a blank rating on the Blacklist website or when I was saying that would just 
I think that's kind of amateur. Like that, that, that that's such a populated site mm-hmm. that everyone can upload any script that they pay the fees and everything. It's a great resource for writers and for representatives alike, but it, it's not a filtered system. Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily put a lot of stock into the people that are doing the reading on those things, which I just, I just don't know them. I don't, I don't know their taste. I don't know where their background is. I don't know how much they're doing it for money or passion or what. I don't know. So I actually don't, care about the rate. I actually don't frankly understand the rating systems on most of those. (laughs) I don't know what those numbers mean. Uh Um, So I actually, I I do frequent those sites looking for content. It's kind of looking for a needle in a stack of needles, but it does, they are great brands, Spec Scout and, and, and Script Shadow and the Blacklist. So like if, if it drives a lot of writers to the, to the site to upload their material. And there, I assure you, there are great writers out there that don't live in LA or don't have access to relationships here that mm-hmm. are putting fantastically written scripts up there. And it's just my job to try to find them. But I don't have a filter system in the sense of like the top rated scripts of the week. Some of them, like I assume that that means that probably a lot of people have downloaded that, mm-hmm. which probably means that I'm probably a little bit late to the party there anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's got a high rating on the on the coverage that they get, again, I don't know that person, so I don't really read it. I read it myself. Like I can open up a script and within three to five pages, sometimes even less, know whether or not the person can write at least right. to the standard that I like to expose. Because this is so many so many people are reading so much material, you do have to grab them quickly, right? You know, and everyone reads so much, they do know what good writing is. So I can stop reading some of these scripts in a page or two and because they're completely embedded I have to because there's just so much content I sift through if people send me a query and say that they're on the blacklist website and they got a reading of blank chances are then because they told me that I won't respond to their query I might go to the blacklist like since I check it out and if I don't like it I'll just delete the email because mm-hmm. I've already kind of they gave me the back door right. that wasn't engaging with them they don't have to send me the script directly I can find it on the website which just doesn't matter to them because if I like it, I'll obviously reach out to them. But it doesn't mean that they're going to get a response from me probably as a result because, right. you know, it's just, it's frankly just one less person in my inbox that I don't know that I'm dealing with. Um, and sometimes that's good just for the best management of my time. So to me, the websites are an invaluable resource, but I, I, I haven't figured out a way to, to filter them in such a way that I can find the best material quick. Like I, I the rating systems don't seem to work for me, and and I, I find the coverage to be very hit or miss. I gotcha. And what about contests? Are there any contests you pay special attention to? Or fellowships? Yes. Yeah, like I have a judge in, in a couple. Um, UCLA screenwriting contests and the Samuel Goldwyn contest and stuff like that, which I think are good, reputable contests. UCLA, because obviously they're, they're studying the craft of screenwriting there and then mm-hmm. writing it through the process of the course. And um, like the Nichols is obviously great, but at the same time, like once the top five or 10 hit, everybody in town reads those. So then it's a bake-off if they're any good, which is mm-hmm. fine. If it's fantastic, I'll jump into the fray. But it's not like I was able to kind of find it and, 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 and pluck it from obscurity and then procure the writer as a client and then, and then expose them in that sense. Everyone's heard of them in that script at that point. When people send me um, queries that say like I was in the top 10% of the Nichols or whatever, like that means that you were in the top 500. Um, so it doesn't exactly excite me because, you know, like sometimes I don't even like the ones that win in all honesty, the way right. that they, they're they written. 
So like if you're if you didn't even get to the top 300, chances are you're not going to move the needle for me. Mm-hmm. So I I would encourage writers to really only advertise if they are the winner or a high finalist in a contest. Anything less than that, I think, is kind of announcing that your script wasn't good enough to get to that level. And at least my business, I'm sure many of my 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 contemporaries in the town, we're we're looking for like the best because I don't have a volume business, so I can't take on anyone that I don't think is exceptional. Right. Um, so I, I can't take, I won't take someone whose script was like 499th on the blacklist <laughs> or, right. or, or something, you know, it's just, it's a little interest to me. Right. Right. I gotcha. Other than good writing, what do you look for in clients? I look for like an entrepreneurial spirit. Like mm-hmm. in management, I have, I have the the benefit of being platform agnostic, so I can work across any medium in which I can get a story to an audience, be it film, television, books, digital content. It really doesn't matter. Um, So, and I think in this market today where we have a proliferation of content across diverse media platform, you know, writers should be open-minded to finding myriad ways to tell their stories because sometimes certain stories aren't right for certain platforms and they only want to write in that platform. So if someone has an idea and then we can, we can decide what's the best way to go based on the idea and the market, then it gives me a lot more freedom to service the client and it gives them a lot more opportunity to have their material um, actually um, turn into something, turn into a product. Um, so I like it when they have that open-mindedness versus just someone that only wants to write movies. Like I don't mind if they have a focus, but I don't want them to be adverse to other mediums. I just don't think it's the way of the the way of the industry these days. And like I said earlier, being a screenwriter in Hollywood is like 50% writing and 50% relationship building and, mm-hmm. and how you present yourself and your social skills and how well you articulate yourself and your spontaneous, your spontaneous um, creativity. And, you know, when you're in a room, how you can read people and express empathy. And I just, I, so I, I need someone who kind of has that skill set. Like if a writer is someone that really is only comfortable sitting at their keyboard in that isolated state Right. And crafting words on the page and then giving it to people and that's it. Like they can't handle notes. They can't handle the interface with other people. It's too socially awkward for them. Mm-hmm. Those people, unfortunately, I can't work with just because at best they're a spec client that can write a script and then we maybe sell it and then they don't get to do their own rewrite because they can't interact with people properly or take notes. Right. And that's just not a good enough. That's not, that's not a strong enough business model for me. Um, so I need someone that is just as strong as co- of a communicator as they are a writer. Gotcha. Um, or at least they're willing to acknowledge that that's important and, mm-hmm. and they work on it. Like they're not afraid of that. They, they lean into that challenge. And even though it might be a little scary, they want to get better at it. And I'll put them in situations if it's mean putting them in general meetings with people that are friends that can just kind of get to know them and help them through that process before I put them in the rooms where there's something more at stake, whatever it takes, I'll support them in that. But if they're, if, if, if it's just too challenging for them or scary for them, then that usually is a, a no, a no go for me in that regard. Right. Um, and, uh, 
And then I, I, for me, it's also important, you know, my role as a manager is in many ways to be a coach and to advise them. You know, they would, you know, consider me like, you know, like a, some sort of like expert in that field of guiding their career, being aware of what's going on around town, giving them advice. And so, yeah, I think it's important when I work with people that they acknowledge that's the case so that, that they're open and trusting of what I have to say. Like sometimes in my experience too, like just in general, it's, it's the nature of being a human being. We have a comfort zone and our comfort zone is where we kind of want to live sometimes. And then we, we, we filter all of the advice that we like into that zone and the stuff that we don't, we resist. And sometimes their career is on the other outside that box. It's going to be advice that's going to scare them. It's going to make them uncomfortable. It's going to challenge them. And if they're adverse to that challenge and they push back at it or, or they, they argue with it or they're, or they're you know, with, without any real rational reason to kind of not be open to it, mm-hmm. then that is a problem for me because I need people that are willing to, to work that hard. Like if I have to be like some analogy to Kurt Russell and miracle, not that I would take on that demeanor with a client ever, but (laughs) but that sometimes you have to be that person where it's like, you are so talented, but you're getting in your own way. Mm -hmm. You are so talented, but you're not seeing the forest for the trees here. This is why let's work through this together. I want them to be willing to roll their sleeves up and get dirty with me about that. Cause that's, that's where the next, next level is going to be. It's going to be going to the place they've never been. And to get there, they're going to have to take the advice they've never wanted to take or do the things they've never thought they would do. And it's going to be scary. And I'm not afraid to challenge them and to go with them down that darker path, but they have to be willing to take the advice and join me and step in front of me and then run ahead of me because they need to be in the driver's seat at all times. Um, and if they're unwilling to do that, if their if their fears outweigh their vision in that regard, then um, that usually becomes a problem down the road. Right. It's hard to tell that in the first couple of weeks or months, but if down the road I feel like I'm hitting a wall or a lower ceiling that this person is potential is mm-hmm. getting to them. And I, I want to take people to the highest level. I don't, I've never met anyone that says they want to be mediocre. So if they say they want to be exceptional or extraordinary what they do, I'm going to help them get there. But they have to be willing to take themselves there. So that's 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 an important criterion to me that I'm noticing more so as I, I've been in this business longer now. Right. Earlier on, you mentioned brand when you're describing clients or you know, writers. Can you describe what that means and why it's important? Um, yeah, yeah. Branding is, you know, it's, it's kind of the cornerstone of what any business is going to do. You look outside the door and you're, all you're going to see is brown surrounding mm-hmm. you. Like the goal is to kind of distinguish yourself and to create a unique, uh, a, 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 a unique way in which people see you such that you stand out. Um, writers and filmmakers, their brand is going to be built largely by their content, um, the quality of their voice, the uniqueness of their voice. Um, sometimes the way in which they um, they present themselves to the market, whether their personality um, makes them stand out or whatnot. But, you know, it, it's when I talk to people in the early stages of their career, I kind of want to get a sense of who they are and who they want to be. And we either have to fuse them or we just have to take who they are and have other people 
realize this is who they are and this is what they want to write and respond to it and appreciate it and have them think of that person whenever their mind goes into that zone. So that person starts to be the go-to person. Like if, you know, like, you know, I think Chris Nolan and looking at film, Chris Nolan's built a brand on the kind of movies that he makes. Tim Burton has built a brand. Guillermo's built a brand. Cameron's built a brand. And writers like, you know, it's harder for writers to build a brand, but like Tarantino is a writer director. He has a brand, Paul Thomas. So like they have a very specific style that defines them. Right. And if writers have and filmmakers have that distinctive a voice, mm-hmm. um, then we want to accentuate that. And we want to expose that to people in a very clean and clear way so that people start to think of that person um, more so than other people when it comes to creating opportunity and content in that world. And that's just going to create more opportunity for them that becomes more specific to them and less competitive eventually. And it just means that they start getting more incoming opportunity and they're, they're considered more the expert or the prototype in that area. Sometimes we'll hear a lot in our business where they're looking for a writer and that writer is not available because he's always busy, but they might say that writer is the prototype. That, sure. that writer has branded themselves. Mm-hmm. As being like Aaron Sorkin has branded himself as being a guy that can do strongly, um, richly characterized, whip smart rapartee writing of characters, and maybe even more of a, of a political slant to it. But like he's that guy, and mm-hmm. as a result, people think of him in that zone. You know, David E. Kelly in television, he built a brand. You know, right. like it's just like so they they just stand out because they have a skill and they exploit it. And people respond to it. Right. And not every client is going to be brandable in that regard. Like some clients want to be far more prolific. They want to write anything and everything and all of that. And that is okay. Like it just means you've got to you've got to build it. You're, you you got to build that prolific brand a little bit more so over time. Mm-hmm. Because you you got to kind of put yourself a little bit into the zone. And then once you prove yourself there, then you can be accepted to expand into another zone or another genre to create more, you know, more range to your body of work or just to excite them and what they ultimately want to do creatively. So that's a different, it's a different part of it. But some people are very specific. They want to be, I want to be known as this guy or I want to make films of this ilk or I want to do TV of this nature. And, you know, they've got to be exceptional at it and they've got to commit to it and they've got to make sure that they're the best at it and they stand out. And they have to have representatives that are proud enough of their material to speak about them in that regard with everyone so that they start to become this constant part of the conversation around town in that, in that space. Right. Coming from Canada yourself, would you consider clients not located in the U.S.? And if so, how would you work with them and what would the specific challenges be for those screenwriters? Oh, most certainly. Like I, I assure you, there's plenty of talent that does not live in the United States of America. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, they're a little bit harder to find sometimes because, um, you know, it means you just have to. You know, they're not, they don't have local access to a lot of the resources that we use here, like contests or whatnot. But the internet has certainly made it possible to find anyone anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, the challenges that arise is obviously geography, which means that they're not going to be able. To they're not in the country or in the city to be able to meet people and to kind of build those relationships in that such a meaningful and aggressive way that you can when you're more accessible living in LA. 
And sometimes there's, there's, there's work restraints. If they don't live in the country, they can't work in the country, which means that they can't come and take certain jobs on a certain level. They really have to get hired to direct the movie or they have to sell a script. Like, they don't have the freedom to just kind of like do something else while they're trying to get by here. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to stay where they're at and they can only come here when they're making ser- a serious, of, serious enough money to relocate their life and then also have enough interest from the country to want to sponsor them or to bring them over on, on uh, through the immigration process with going through it myself. It's not easy. Mm-hmm. So um, but I don't think too, too much about that in the early stages. I, I focus just on their talent, their potential and work with them to try to get them for, in a position where they can actually, we can then address those problems. Right. If someone isn't, local like isn't in la or isn't in the country like i i'm i'm, a, I'm more picky mm-hmm. in the sense like i think i'm pretty picky in general but like if i'm going to represent someone in the uk or central america or you know canada like they have to be really good <laughs> because i know it's going to be much harder to expose them and to build a fan base and to get them work Mm-hmm. Um, so I really especially have to believe in them. Not that I take on people I don't believe in, but there is another level in which like, I, I would never take a flyer on someone from another country. Like they've got to be someone I'm like, I'm going to roll my sleeves up to my shoulders and work hard with these people because it's going to be, you know, there is a little bit of a bias when it comes to breaking people that aren't available to go and go to a meeting or, they aren't here to take full advantage of just the opportunities of living in the country, especially in Los Angeles, where, you know, you can just be part of the conversation more regularly because you're more accessible. Absolutely. But, but there's a lot of great, like, you know, I think um, a lot of different cultures and, you know, sensibility wise, I think a lot of filmmakers that come out of Eastern Europe and Central America, like there's just something different about what they create, their content. It just has a different point of view, a sure. different voice, mm-hmm. which I think is less sometimes homogenized and more distinct and fresh. And like, so I also value that element um, mm-hmm. just because they bring a whole other perspective to their craft and they want to tell different stories. And, you know, they just were brought up in a different environment that just makes them unique in that regard, which I think, just starts to stand out after a while. There's something very sexy about that if they're talented. Right. Now, we've got a couple of reader questions that I want to throw your way. Here's the first one. In the event that I find a new manager, is the protocol and understanding that all the scripts still circulating that I began circulating with my previous manager would remain hers? That is, her name would stay on them and she'd receive the commission if anything happens. Um, I think that would that would be fair. Like, if that... If the, if that previous manager, well, if, if that manager wouldn't be working with that person anymore, like there's mm-hmm. no, at least I don't want to have a dual representation with another manager. They probably let go of that manager for very good reasons. Right. Um, but if that, if that manager developed that material extensively and the relationship they exposed it to then came to the table, mm-hmm. I would think that person is entitled to their commission sure. in that regard. Just because they did the work and it's their relationships. Now, if someone wrote a script and went out with it and did a really shitty job, and then I read it and said, this is really great, let's redevelop it and let's change the title, let's go to different people, and then it's all, but that, that, that manager gets nothing mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they were ineffective. You don't get paid for being ineffective. Right. Um, so that's the way I guess I would distinguish it in the basic sense. If I have clients that had material with other managers, 
I like to know the backstory of kind of their material and where it was and how it was, how it was received and stuff. It's a rare circumstance where I find a client with a piece of older material that's been out there that I think is viable. Mm-hmm. There's probably a reason why people haven't chomped it. I think good material always quickly rises to the top. Right. And if that kind of languished, unless the representative was very ineffective about exposing it, it probably isn't, there's probably reason for that on the page. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's probably something that, you know, they should focus more so on the windshield and less on the rear view mirror. Right. When it comes to material in their career. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a, that's a trial by trial base. I have to kind of like do the exploration of a client's previous relationships and material to determine that. Right. It's a rare circumstance in which I find something has, but they've got that, that big speck that they dust off and show me. Like it's probably still to come. Right. The case. Right. Gotcha. Um, now this one I thought was kind of fun, um, but it's, it's something that I'd love to get your uh, stamp on. I've read up on the industry and discovered that industry pros like agents and producers keep a database of writers who have submitted screenplays that weren't ready for prime time. So any subsequent submission by those writers, no matter how good, will go immediately in the trash. Is this true? I certainly hope not. Um, <laughs> if you're going to brand someone based on one piece of material, I think you've got a very myopic approach to running your business. Um, people do get better at what they do, I should hope. So I, I, I that, that sounds a little ludicrous to me. I don't know why someone would have the time or patience to put together such a document. Right. Um, I'm sure people have a story department that maybe has, you know, created a system that allows them to filter things like that. But I think for the most part, unless it's like, a, like you know, if, if, if the same writer keeps submitting myriad material and it's all is inadequate, then maybe eventually that person might be like, I'm not reading this, but I've read several, um, but not one or two. Like, and I think that they, I'd like to think that most people are keeping an open mind to that. Cause like, you know, we can, we can, we can come victims to our perception. And I think you can miss on a lot of opportunities. If you, if you kind of judge a book by its cover, mm-hmm. sometimes you have to kind of do that so that you can just have better time management and a better filtering system. Right. But I think if, if you're predisposed to always kind of judging things based on the past, then you're just going to recreate your past over and over again. <laughs> right. Um, so I, I, I try to give people the benefit of the doubt that there is growth. The fact that they're resubmitting or they're writing new material is indicative of the fact they're committed to their career. And there's value in that alone. Whether or not they're improving remains to be seen, but at least they're still at it, and um, you know that's that's honorable. So I think there's a lot more to be said about people that continue to persist and continue to apply themselves and get better. I know I, I, I'm not going to name any names, but I have people that I work with and people I know that I've read scripts of theirs in the past from years ago that I thought were unreleasable, and now they have scripts I think is are genius. And just sometimes it takes time to find your voice, to find the right story, and to be in the right headspace. Timing is important. Mood is important. There's so many variables. And I think if you sit down with an open mind and give it a chance, then you're going to get the best and most honest impression of something. Um, Otherwise, it's already been guilty before proven innocent. And why, you know, I guess why bother? Maybe that's why they have those systems in place to to save time. but I would like to think that most 
people do not operate from that form of business. They might have people that set material for them that they trust. So when it gets to them, it's kind of like been pre-approved. But I think that that type of system seems a little bit, um, a little bit silly. Right. Now, here's one that I've asked in a previous interview, but I want to get your take on it because you did touch base on a lot of the issues within the question itself. Because managers interviewed in the past make clear that they are interested in developing the writer, not just selling a single spec script, I'm curious what the bar is for bringing on a new writer as a client. Must concept and execution be perfect or at least an eight on a scale of one to ten? What if the writing is really good, but the story needs tweaking development? Um, The question comes from a personal frustration from getting several emails like this. I took a look at the script, and although I I thought it was well-written, it's not going to be for me, just not my zone. Now, I'm willing to concede that such responses could be typical, sugar-coated, you suck, but there's a consistency in the passes, and the script itself got some love as one of of ten favorites of screenplay mechanic. Um, How does a manager decide a writer is good enough to develop? Yeah, well, I think a response like that, like I, 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 I sound like one of mine, frankly. Like you know, there's, you know, for me personally, like you know, I, I, I always try to like the fact the person wrote the script and sent it to me and 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 took the time and everything. Like they get to be treated with respect and appreciation for that. And if the script is well written, like for me, well written is just like that's that's really a nice way of saying it's passable. It's like, it, it, you know, you, you, you can write, but I would not dub them exceptional. And to me, writing needs to be exceptional. Mm-hmm. They need to have a strong voice. They need to have excellent character development. They have to have a good ear for dialogue. Like, these are things that I do not and will not teach writers because, you know, they need to be better at writing than me. Otherwise, I would just write it myself. <laughs> right. um, so, so in that scenario, like, like chances are that type of pass was a very polite way of saying like, you know, this isn't right. Like either for whatever reason we have to say, we don't think they're talented enough for our standard of business. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't want to sound elitist in any way. It's just, it's just not, it's just not at the level that I want to spend my time on. Mm-hmm. And I'll just find a very polite way of saying that rather than just saying, didn't like your script, give up. Like, well, who would ever do that? You know? Right. So, you know, like, so like, and, and I would never encourage anyone to ever take my advice if I was that much of an asshole. Um, mm-hmm. I would tell them to prove me wrong, and I hope they do. But yeah, so like, with me when taking on a new client, like, the writing, and I've done it before where I just, like, I really, really like the voice and the writing, but I felt they missed the bullseye in terms of concepts or the execution. I can help with concept. I can help with execution. That's development. And we can either redevelop that script based on notes if I felt a strong enough connection to the material to be able to develop it. Mm-hmm. Like, I think I can develop a, a broad swath of material, but if it doesn't really speak to me creatively, I'm probably not going to be the most effective person developing it. Mm-hmm. And then I would, I would say, I don't think I can help you get this to where it needs to be. If this is very important to you, and I do think the bones of it work, then I, what I might need to do is I might need to partner them with a development executive or producer mm-hmm. and help them develop them with them so that they can get it there. And then I would work with them on something else if mm-hmm. they assume they have other ideas and they want to work on more than just one piece of material. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's really hard to, to, to define precisely what it looks like. It's kind of like you know it when you see it. Right. Um, but, you know, for me, screenwriting is a very specific language. It, um, you know, it's reserved largely to images and sounds. 
but it also, the writing, like tone is the voice of a writer. Like in a movie, a director brings tone through images and the way that they capture their, their, their emotions. There will be pictures where a writer's tone comes from their voice. So if they're writing a thriller, I'd want to be written in a way that's thrilling. And it, sure. it, 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 it excites me. If they're writing a comedy, I want their voice to be funny and I want to laugh. If they're writing an action script, I want it to be well-paced. I want to keep want you know to keep me on the edge of my figurative script and uh, uh, of my figurative seat. And that's what they have to do as writers. They have to like evoke that degree of engagement. It can't just be like writing literally what I see and hear in the most you know um, the flattest way possible to get the mechanics out. Mechanical right. writing is of little interest to me. I want them to be able to make it an enjoyable experience. And the irony is at the end of the day, if that movie gets made, all of that will be lost because none of that is really retained because a director and an art director and a cinematographer and editor, they're all going to come in and reinterpret that. Mm -hmm. But for the sake of selling material, that has to be on the page because that's where it starts. And that's what's important to representatives and I believe a, uh, agents and ex executives and what gets an actor interested. It's a director interested. You got to make your read engaging and, and exciting or whatever it is you're going for, you have to evoke it. And I think that's largely, you know, innate in certain writers. Like I, I guess it is a skill that can be learned from reading a lot of screenplays and, and starting to emulate them and finding your voice that way. Right. But, you know, I find a lot of people when they just pick up uh, they just start typing. They have a, an internal cinematic lexicon that just starts to form on the page. It's, just, it's a very intrinsic process. Right. Um, I think it's much easier to develop a writer if, if, if it doesn't have to be work in finding their voice. The work will be in finding the right story to tell right. and executing it properly. And those elements, let's look at that. If I have to give them notes on how to physically write, <laughs> it's usually not worth my time. Right. Now, we could, I could probably ask you another 30 questions, but we're running a little short on time. So we've got a rapid-fire mm -hmm. section. Um, it's okay. just a couple fun questions. So here we go. If you had to survive in the jungle with one fictional Scott, who would you pick? Scott Pilgrim, Michael Scott from The Office, or Scott Evil, played by Seth Green in the Austin Powers movie? I would probably go with Seth Green from, <laughs> from the Austin <laughs> Powers movie. Because I always felt like... He reminds me a little bit of myself growing up, where he's just the kind of the guy that's always just like a little left of center and always trying to fit in, but always feeling he had to work twice as hard as the guy next to him and fighting for attention. So like I feel we get along. And I think Seth Green and I, you know, you know, probably probably get along pretty well. So that would be a fun a fun guy to hang out with on that island. Cool. Um, and if you could drive one of these... And he's got low self-esteem, too, so I could <laughs> manipulate him if I wanted to. Which is always important when you're trying to survive in the jungle. Yes. Because I, I might need him for sustenance at some point. Right, or to uh, fight off the, uh, the the hordes of lions coming after yes. you. Um, if you could drive one of these famous film TV cars, which would it be? Kit the Knight Rider car, uh, the Batmobile, your choice whichever Batmobile from whatever film or TV series, um, or the General Lee from Dukes of the Hazard? I'd probably say um, Kit, mm -hmm. because, you know, I, I like communicating and I'd have someone to talk to in the car. <laughs> yeah, the car. Gotcha. Yeah, you know, you know, you know we'd be able to, to shoot the shit and, um, you know, it seems like it'd be a little bit more engaging than 
you know, just a, a vehicle. Right. Um, now, I know you're a big Simpsons fan. Mm-hmm. If Duffman, Barney, and Homer Simpson were in a drinking contest, who would win and why? In a drinking contest. It's hard to define how you would win that contest, um, but I would... I guess the last man standing, say, probably. Yeah, I'd say probably Barney, because he looks like he literally only lives in the bar. So <laughs> right. I imagine he has the highest tolerance to alcohol. Duffman, I don't even... I've never seen drink. I think he might be a non-alcoholic spokesperson for right. Duff. So I think I would put my money on Barney, because he would be the most committed to to winning, because it's what he does best. Right. You know, Homer's one hell of an exceptional drinker, he does have a lot of interests. Right. Whereas Barney seems his whole life is some sort of drinking contest. Yeah, that's all he does. He right. is an expert at drinking. Um, do you have any last thoughts or advice for aspiring screenwriters? Hmm. God, you say, you say we're running short on time. Um, <laughs> I, I, I would say, um, you know, I think my, my advice is because the way that the, the industry is these days where I feel there's so many different opportunities and these opportunities are changing in order to tell stories that writers should, should keep an open mind on, 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 on how they want to tell their stories because there's so many different ways to do it. I think maybe, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it made the most sense to come to Hollywood, write a spec script and then try to go off and get your movies made and do that. And now I just feel like that's just one of, of many roads and that road isn't even as, uh, that road's a little bit more treacherous than it used to be. Um, so that obviously you have to follow your passion, but you know, I'd say come up with a story you're, that, that you're passionate about and then just determine what's the best way to tell that story. Maybe, maybe it is, maybe it is a novel. Maybe, maybe it's a, a mini series. Maybe it's a TV series. Maybe it's a movie. Maybe it's a blog. Maybe it's a short story, you know, find your voice, put it on the page in any format that you think best suits the nature of that story. Mm-hmm. And that I think will give them more opportunity and will also show people that they're not kind of put in the box that is, this is the way the business is. Cause I, I don't think the business is what it used to be. And I think it's constantly evolving now. So, you know, I think there's so many different ways in which you can find your voice and expose it these days. And I would encourage people when they're first starting out, I think a lot of people, like obviously as a representative, I'd love it if I can find clients and material that I can sell and make money on for them and myself. Mm-hmm. But I really think they should also focus uh, on just telling a story that they think that they can, that will excite them and that they can crush. Like they can really capture the voice of the characters and, and tell the story the best of their ability and feels personal to them and organic and, and exciting and original and all of that. And that, and, and not be attached to selling it. Like just use that as a way to get representation, maybe to get opportunity, but you, you know, it's a marathon in this business. So mm-hmm. write something that you feel can get you in the business and then always have to be writing and don't put all your eggs in one basket. Cause you're, you can't just say, I wrote this one script and now, you know, go and get the movie made. They got to start writing as soon as they finish that script. Right. But I think they should focus on just telling a great story initially. Then once they're in the system, then they're going to have to be prepared to have their representatives 
helping guiding them into what they feel might be the best way in which they can be monetized, which isn't writing your passion, so to speak, every day anymore. It might not be. So while they have the opportunity, they might as well do it now and, and then, you know, go from there. Great advice. Thanks for coming on the show, Scott. You're welcome. Yeah, no, you can follow Scott on Twitter at SGCar80. That's car with two R's. Uh, and you can check out his website, management-sgc.com. Uh, and of course, you can find us on Twitter at Scriptscribes. There's no and in the middle there, just at Scriptscribes. And on Facebook, uh, Facebook slash Scripts and Scribes. Um, so, but yeah, thanks again for coming on the show, Scott. You gave us a lot of great information. Um, you're very welcome. I appreciate the opportunity, and um, I had a lot of fun. Um, so thanks to our listeners, and uh, we'll see you next time.